This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne. And hope wherever you are listening from, you find yourself well. In England here, well, we're still in a state of lockdown. Which for many, means a long period of staying at home, working, or trying to homeschool, or both. Or perhaps trying to search for a new job. Wherever you find yourself, I hope you find these podcasts bring a little respite from it all. It is of course an independent England football supporters podcast. Now recently, I put out a couple of episodes, one where I reacted to the news of UEFA's Euro 2020 ticket situation, which since then, they've slightly adapted their terms and conditions, and you can see the update over at the FA's website. However, now, by the time this podcast is out, the deadline for accepting refunds for tickets has now passed. And also, I put an episode out where I spoke with John Hemingham from the England band, John is the founder of the band. He's the one with a trumpet. I did think it would be a little bit of a Marmite episode, that one. But it's actually gone down quite well. Perhaps we're just missing a little bit of them at the moment. As always, those episodes and all the previous ones can be found at threelinespodcast.com or at your usual podcast provider. Now, if you're into your England history, then I hope that this and the next episode will be something you may find of interest. Coming up soon on this episode, I'll bring you a chat I had with Mark Chapman, curator of the website englandsamateurs.com, which, as the title suggests, looks back at England's amateurs from their period between 1906 and 1974. Then the episode that will follow this, scheduled to come out on the 4th of February, I'll be speaking with Graham Morse, author of the book Sir Walter Winterbottom, the father of modern English football. Now, Graham is more than just the first England manager's biographer, but you'll have to tune in to find out why. But before that, let's catch up on some England-related news. Now, as I mentioned a couple of episodes back, Phil Neville was on the verge of leaving the Lionesses for Inter-Miami in the MLS. This was confirmed on the 18th of January, when the FA announced he was stepping down from his post early. He was due to leave when Serena Weigman arrives in September. With that still the case, the Lionesses have had to look for someone to oversee in this interim period. So in came former Norwegian midfielder Hager Riesa and ex-Canadian international Rian Wilkinson. Riesa will take charge of the lead role in place of Neville for the upcoming February camp. Those have proven to be quite successful in recent times when games were scheduled, although then cancelled due to coronavirus. Whether they'll get the opportunity to take charge of a game remains to be seen. However, 
there is the small situation of the Olympics and Team GB. Neville, well, he was due to take that role. The Olympics are scheduled to take place in Tokyo in Japan between the 23rd of July and the 8th of August. And these, like the European Championships, were postponed by 12 months. But if you read some of the reports, the competition is still not a given that it will take place. And then there was the sad news to report. The 21st of January saw the passing of former England international Peter Swan. Peter made 19 appearances for England between 1960 and 1962 in a bit of a stop-start career. He was a regular for Sheffield Wednesday, turning out 301 times as a defender. He also played 35 times for Berry, for whom he scored his only two goals for. Now, I say that his career was stop-start. This was because he was involved in a high-profile betting scandal that saw him banned initially for life from the game, but then reduced to, on appeal, eight years between 1964 and 1972, for which he served four months in prison. His England career had the potential to be so much more had he not have become involved in the crime. Sir Alf Ramsey supposedly told him that he would have been top of his list for the 1966 tournament. Now, the games he did participate in involved friendlies, home internationals and the 1962 World Cup qualifiers. He was called up for the 62 squad for Chile, but pulled out with tonsillitis, then recovered and travelled, but didn't play in any of the games as he contracted dysentery, a type of gastroenteritis. Peter was 84 and we send our condolences to his family and friends. Let's move on to this episode. Now in the past I've tried to bring you a little insight to some of the other England teams that play with the three lions on their shirt. The blind team, the C team, the amputee side, the lionesses, they're all available at threelionspodcast.com. But for this episode, we're going back in time a little bit. Here is my conversation with Mark Chapman from englandsamateurs.com. Hope you enjoy it. I'd like to welcome to the Three Lions podcast, Brentford fan, part-time photographer and curator of the EnglandAmateurs.com websites. Please welcome Mark Chapman. Hello, Mark. Hi, Russell. How are you? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Looking Just looking forward now to, to football being played on a regular basis uh, in yes. front of fans now. Yeah, well, just as a, a marker, we're speaking early December here. Yes, EnglandAmateurs.com is is the main main topic of of what we'd like to have a chat about here. First and foremost, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been a Brentford fan for my sins for about thirty five years now. I've been a I've worked at the club on three separate occasions, each doing a different role each time. And my background is in communications. Uh, like you said, I'm also a part time photographer. Just got a massive interest in the game and a big love for my local. Uh, semi-professional t- uh, side at the time when I was a teenager, the Hounslow, they went bust. 
they had a big history in the 50s with uh, amateur internationals. So, you know, I've always had that interest in this national football side that basically, you know, for, for want of a better phrase, went bust in 1974 because everyone realised that these amateurs were actually getting paid anyway. So it was, it was it was time to come clean, really. So I've got a big love for the game, big love for the game internationally and domestically as well. But, I've uh, you know, I, I'm a bit of an anorak at heart. So it's an area of football that actually, actually isn't that well researched. Uh, and it's not readily that readily available. I know Brian McCole and uh, his team did a fantastic book a year or so ago about international amateur international football. But in, in terms of the actual personalities uh, that actually played for the amateur side, that's something that I'm really interested as well. And I do a similar thing for Brentford, where I'm, you know, I've got a log of all the Brentford first team players since you know the the beginning pretty much. So I'm interested in the personalities that also played for the teams as well, not just the you know, just the bare results, you know, the actual the sort of the earthy history, I would say. Yeah. I mean, on a previous Free Lions podcast, we spoke with Paul Fairclough, the England Sea manager. I mean, am I right in saying the England Sea team were, or, or the amateur team were the team before the England Sea team? Is that what they became? Yeah, pretty much, I'd say. I mean, there was a gap of five years, I understand. So the last England amateur international match was at Coventry. It was a one-all draw. And the, uh, from memory, the, the C team, which was known as the England semi-professional team at the time, which is quite a bureaucratic title, but there we go. They started in 79. So I'm guessing when the FA made the decision in 1974 to follow cricket, whereas cricket had gentlemen and players, that was the sort of polite word for amateurs and professionals, that was got rid of, and I believe it, that was 1960. So actually cricket were well ahead of the curve on this because they realised there was probably being payment played, uh, made to amateurs. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was rife in the game right up until 74. And then the FA made a very sensible decision, which they probably they probably should have cut it earlier to disband the team. So you've got that five-year gap of sort of indecision. And, and actually, you've got fantastic level of football with the Isthmian League, Northern Premier League, Southern League footballers. And they're actually not getting any sort of recognition. So I think that must have been the driver behind it. And also, 1979 was the first year of what was then the Alliance Premier League, then became the conference and what we know of it now as the National League. So I think there may have been a drive in the late in the late 70s to make sure that players got England recognition. I see kind of all, all the uh, the puzzle parts of the puzzle begin to fit there, I see. So, I mean, the amateur team, from what I can see, as I say, it be- began around at the turn of the century, 1906 time. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the, the, the first game was in France. Uh, and they absolutely gave France a drubbing. And what I have noticed from the Don't match like report that, is... Don't like to hear that, do we, at all? Well, we never like to hear that. But the, the kickoff was delayed because the photographer was taking a, a picture of both teams. So you can imagine he was probably working on glass plate photographies. This is where my photography knowledge comes in. And it probably took quite a while to get composed because you actually have to get people stock still ready back in those days to actually take a, a photo that's quite crisp. But I've never seen a photo of this. So if anyone's listening, please do contact Russell because it's actually the first game of the first international uh, side. What happened a year later was that uh, a lot of amateur sides broke away from the FA over payments to players as compensation when they were taken out of their, their job. A lot of the pure amateurs, and then they especially probably came from a public school background where money wasn't an issue to them anyway, really hated the idea of getting any sort of money for access for the for playing football uh you would you know if you uh working class northern or southern most likely northern 
footballer and an amateur one, you know, taking a day, half day off of work, that's going to seriously restrict your wages. So you were compensated for that. And a lot of clubs split up. So in 1907, the Amateur Football Alliance was uh, formed and they had their own amateur international football team. So actually, you from 1907 to 1914, when everyone, the process was healed and everyone kissed and made up, so to speak, from a footballing perspective, you had two sets of England amateur international sides playing other federations that weren't affiliated, uh, either by FIFA or even by the Football Association. And it could be argued that the Amateur Football Alliance team was actually probably the stronger one because all the old boys, football teams and the universities, they pretty much went across and, and boycotted the FA. And also, that's another part of research that I've looked into. It's uh, it's a really interesting angle to it all. And you wouldn't think there would be all this. You can see all the shenanigans with TV deals at the moment and uh, Premier League. And you, n- you never thought that went on in the Edwardian period, but, but it absolutely uh, did. So you've got that seven years of him over there and him over there. But it's all fascinating. So I just started to looking into this and then suddenly realising it was a geek in me thinking, you know what, I can't buy a book where all of this information is held. No one's done it. So why don't I have a look? So what I did was I went to the British Newspaper Library, which was then based at Collindale, uh, where I'd been going until it closed uh, seven years ago. I've been going pretty much since I was 17, 18, just to look up the results. And that was pre, you know, we've got an age now where we can go on the British Library website and look at, a lot of newspapers from the era and glean that information back in those days especially when I was younger it's a lot harder you actually had to go to the library order the the volumes of newspapers wait three quarters of an hour for them to turn up and then you'd look at the relevant pages and find out there's no information and they had to order them again from a different volume and it was very slow and painstaking now it's at a touch of a button so I began collating all of this information team lineups and what I do have at the moment is a fa- not complete in all areas, but I do have a family tree of every England international footballer from 1906 up to 1939. Right. And a lot of these players from that era, middle to upper class gentlemen, uh, mm. for want of a better phrase, where football was a, a great pastime and outlet for them. It wasn't a means to an end. It's just something they enjoyed. And it was a, uh, Another way we're meeting up there with their old university mates. Uh, and that's actually what caused the split in the late 19th century, where the Football League and the FA had to recognise that they were players being paid. And they had to recognise that and, uh, and and get on with it, basically. But this is the this is the last of the amateurs, so to speak. You know, they wouldn't deem themselves to be playing with professionals unless... It was uh, maybe an FA Cup match. So people like the, the, the famous Corinthians and, uh, and casuals, you know, they would get huge crowds. And the games were played at sometimes neutral venues, you know, Stanford Bridge, you know, 50,000 people turning up, uh, especially in the 1920s. They would be given special dispensation. Sometimes Corinthians were given a buy to the third round because the, the, the quality of the side was actually that good. Right. Um, and some of the teams, they would come up against third division north or south teams and they would absolutely trounce them so that's that's why they were held in these sort of revered status so that all of this lumped together sort of piqued my interest basically and to and just just a little bit little, little bit further and it was a it was a, a nice parallel to my Brentford research because we've had a lot of England uh, amateurs especially when we hit the old first division in the mid-1930s for the first time 
we had amateur players that were, were playing even then. So Jackie Burns was was playing regularly for the for Brentford in the old first division in the first season there, and he was a schoolmaster by profession. Okay, I mean, I speaking of players from various clubs, I by chance. I picked up a job lot of of England programs, of which three of them were were amateur programs. What have I got? I've got England, Netherlands from '66, England, Finland from '73, and England, Scotland from '68. And it was the England, Scotland one that sort of I, I was looking through the team, and and they are all sort of the players come from like as you say stereotypical non-league teams sort of I guess of the time there's like Hendon, Tutinamich and Sutton were all big of, of that era what we took in 68 but there's also Manchester United and I didn't realise I until yeah. reading it that there was they picked from it was Alan Gowling a youngster who's come to prominence this year with the Manchester United Central League team so it wasn't from the uh, from obviously the first team but it was they were picking from mainstream teams as well it appears now that's right, and Terry Venables once held the record for playing for every single level of football that he was able to do so at the time in the sixties and seventies. So he played, uh, Terry Venables was uh, at Chelsea, and he played for the England amateur team, and then he played for under twenty ones, under twenty threes, full, and I think he got a B cap as well. So and and Brentford had players that played on amateur forms for us all the way up until nineteen seventy four. They were mostly kids at the end of it. They weren't right. um, sort of. Uh, first team regulars but you're right before the apprenticeship scheme started in 1960 for football juniors would be registered as amateurs and the reason for that is is that it was decreed that if they didn't make it it meant they didn't sign a professional form and then that meant they could play amateur football for the rest of their career because obviously once you signed professional forms you were pretty much banished to professional football unless you were allowed to to do something which is being called a permit player, which is, as what it sounds, you would, you would fill out a form, you would request, and it would normally happen at the end of your career, where you'd like to play for your local team where you've um, probably retired to or you've got a pub and you've set up home and you want to play for the local side, but you've been a pro for 10 years. So you would go cap in hand to the FA and say, look, I don't want to earn any money out of football anymore. I'm, I'm retired from the professional game. Will you please let me play as an amateur? And they would give you a permit for a certain amount of time to do that. Oh, yeah. However, these these players would never get back into the England international team mm. uh, for amateurs. So that would never be the case. It's only only for the old codgers that was you know near the tail end of their career. But the big teams all had amateurs. So they were, I don't think there was probably a single football league side that didn't have amateur players on their books all the way up to the mid-70s. Oh, oh, there you go. I didn't know that. There was one other name that um, stood out to me, and this was from the Finland game, 73. Walton and Hersham player, Dave, I think it's Dave Bassett, was it? Yeah, it will be Dave, it, will, it will be Harry Bassett. Because Harry he Bassett, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he's... he's uh, his birth certificate, on his birth certificate is, is, is David, but as everyone knows him as Harry Bassett. Uh, I do know a very good friend of his, Jeff Taylor, is still going in the 80s, actually. He was the assistant manager to, to Dave uh, and youth team manager in Wimbledon in the old days when they went from the fourth division to the first division. But yes, uh, Walter, uh, Walter and Hersham were a big team back in the day in the, in the early 70s, and a lot of them basically fled and went to, to Wimbledon, and that's how it all started. That's how, you know, the Dons as it were, then r- r- rose from the Southern League right up to the 
to the first division and they did that in nine years actually and when you think about that now it's absolutely incredible and that could never happen again I, I, I would doubt very much that, that could happen again without a really significant amount of money and people do seem to forget that Wimbledon and they weren't very liked when they came into the Football League as, as amateurs from, from the Southern League had really poor crowds but yeah, so there was, as you say, there was a lot of great sides. And unfortunately, a lot of these teams have actually suffered from what I would call professionalism. So when they're allowed to pay players properly, you know, a lot of people have, have lost their ground. So if you take where I grew up in West London, my local team was Halso. They had to uh, merge with Feltham in 1991. They lost their ground. That became a school. Southall lost their ground in the same year because a floodlight pylon fell on the pitch, needed repair. The council who owned the, the ground weren't prepared to, to pay the money. So Southall have been homeless for, for 29 years simply because of that. So Hayes have merged with Yedding. You know, I'm talking about really serious uh, amateur teams in a day. All three of those sides that I've mentioned have got to the Amateur Cup final at Wembley. Uh, some in the case of, of Hayes and Southall actually won it. Southall's ground, like their record crowd was 19,000. You know, there's a, the, the amateur game back then and the first it was absolutely incredible. And the Second World War, after that, you know, people were thirsting to go to events. You know, uh, Athenian League, which was below Isthmian League in terms of status, and that's where Hounslow were at. You know, we get regularly crowds of two, three thousand because people just, you know, they'd had six or seven years of, of war and they just wanted to go and enjoy themselves. And I can see a little bit of a parallel between that and COVID maybe, where yes. we may get, get people who are just absolutely desperate to just go to an event because they do want to mingle. You know, they do want to feel like everything is back to normal again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can understand where you're coming from there. So the englandamateurs.com, the database there you've got of all the games played by the England team. You said that you'd been going to the, the British Library researching. How long has, has this taken? Do, is it complete? Is what, what more do you want to find from it? Well, that's the other thing about the, the England amateur team, which is quite nice for me, is that it's finite. You know, they've played 200-odd games. They won't be playing anymore. So actually, you can chip away until you've found uh, a pretty much a, a good source uh, of information. I mean, what I'd love to do is actually get a book out on England amateur international footballers, similar to the ones that have been produced by Chris Freddie and Doug Lamming. You know, they are two uh, fantastic historians on the game and you know if you haven't had Chris Freddie on on the podcast before I recommend that you put him in because he put he brought out the Guinness book on uh, England uh, facts which is basically a who's who of the England full international team and he has been doing the same as me back in the day uh, absolutely tons of research and I basically want to replicate that for the England amateur team because there is nothing else out there that exists you, you literally just cannot get this information and like I say I like this interesting juxtaposition where you've got the 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 posh amateurs from the 30s and you've got the the working class lads uh that some of them made made uh, one or two caps around that period and then you go all the way up to the the late 60s and early 70s where the england amateur side was mostly southern based because i think the fa were no doubt discriminatory uh, against you know northern teams that were amateurs because they just didn't want to bother going up there and seeing how they played you know you'd have a north and south trial and you'd have southern county amateur championships which effectively would count as trials but if you had two players of similar in similar sort of status that say wanted to be the center half for the next england game they'd probably choose the southern guy you know out of the fact that they've seen them 
more than a northern one, which is a little bit unfair. So you have got a little bit of a bias for the teams of yeah, you know, people like Hendon, Walton and Hersham, Chesham, you know, Sutton United, all the all the big sort of Isthmian, Wickham Wanderers, of course, you know, yeah. we all forget about, you know, I mean, look at them, fantastic. The highest tier of football they've reached so far in their 126 years, I think it is, or, or maybe more, 136 years. So they were all fantastic Isthmian league teams at the time and really uh, and a really good standard of football as well. So probably not forget that as well. And then juggling that with their sort of day job as well. Yeah. You mentioned Terry Venables there um, and, and we've mentioned Harry Bassett as well. Who else have you encountered that has, has moved up through through the, the amateur ranks to professionalism, I guess? Well, it's David David Sadler who played for the Maidstone United. I'm pretty sure he got an amateur cap, and he, he was there a long time at, at Manchester United. Mike Pinner, funny enough, is actually he turned professional really late in his career, which is quite unusual actually. But he was a he played for Manchester United and Queens Park Rangers, but it would be only occasionally. And that's where you get these mythical status of these these international amateur footballers where they come in and play for a league side because maybe the team was short or they were considered good enough so Mike was a goalkeeper so Manchester United having had him on amateur forms QPR did as well because they knew if any of their goalkeepers couldn't go through the 46 game program they could just ring Mike up and say look we've got a game tomorrow night we're, we're a goalkeeper short you're on the books already you fancy coming down and that's what would happen they'd literally turn up with his boots and play and then probably you know uh, What's not un- what's not realised, especially in professional football back in the 20s and 30s, is that a lot of players wouldn't play during the week and train during the week with their team. There's There's been a lot of cases where they've actually stayed at the club where they've been gone from. So they've transferred to another side, uh, but they've actually trained with their old club because actually they've got a house there. They don't want to uproot. You know, I'm sure the cost of living. Footballers' wages weren't fantastic uh, back in those days as well. So, so these amateurs would come in and they'd be, you know, like ships passing in the night, and they'd be the the, the other is t- the teammates would never see them again. Yeah, you mentioned about like the a southern perhaps southern bias. The the games were they ever played at Wembley? Did they ever play at Wembley? Yeah, or? so you'd yeah. There's um, so what you would get is always the uh, the annual game against Scotland would be played at Wembley and you get decent crowds for that. So uh, conversely, because they had a British amateur international championship, you know, the next year you would go to Hampden Park and vice versa. But actually in terms of the venues, uh, they were all over the place and they, and and funny enough, they weren't really discriminatory in terms of that, but maybe the, um, the selection committee or the people involved in the amateur side at the time probably wanted a jolly, uh, right. by train so they would uh, they would get organized games at these uh, neutral venues probably in north of the country because they just fancied the first class rail trip, trip somewhere or somewhere a trip to blackpool a nice bit of food in the hotel watch the game and then go home thanks oh. very much so and also you get the the amateur tours as well going to you know paris and you know, it's well known that a lot of the, the Clapton side of the 1920s in the Isthmian League had three current full internationals playing for England. So actually then playing for the amateur team was actually a step down um, right. sometimes. Uh, and that definitely was Southern bias. You know, that there is absolutely no question you would, uh, maybe some, a team like Northern Nomads would never have got uh, a player in for the England team. So there was definitely a class discrimination going on. And you never know, the, the committee, the selection committee of the FA 
one of the sons might be playing for Clapton, you know, that the, the father knows on the committee. There's a lot of this going right. on, and we'll never get to the, completely to the bottom of it. But that's that is how it went football, especially amateur football back in the day. Yeah, and and it wasn't just the England team that you've been researching. By by all accounts, you've looked at the the Great Britain Olympic team. I think I have, and again, that was another sort of untapped and you know. Life's got in the way. I've got a uh, beautiful wife and daughter. You know, I think if I'd not had that, I probably would have had about three or four books out by now. But uh, I wouldn't swap it. I have to say that they might be hearing. (laughs) They might be listening to this. But um, yeah, and, you know, and that was truly amazing. And it was fantastic to see the great British team playing the Olympics because I and I thought that was a great thing. And uh, it's a real shame that that one off has not uh, come to pass. But the FA did all the organising of all the tournaments going back to 1908, I believe, of the Great British team. So the Scottish FA, the Welsh and the Northern Irish, or the, it was called the Irish FA at the time, they wouldn't do anything. They'd send players to the games, but it, it would be the FA that would, uh, that would administer that. And there's some fascinating things. It's just seeing that, you know... And there's still some blank pages to be filled. You know, there's uh, at short notice, the great British team would organise a warm-up match before the Olympic tournament started. Uh, and there's some games uh, where I don't remember the countries offhand, but we've only got scorers and, and scores details. We don't even have the lineup right? Um, because they were sort of arranged at such notice. But, but when you're a football researcher, that just gives you a little bit of a spur to go on. Can I find it in a newspaper? Can I find it in the other country's newspaper as well? Because actually playing Great Britain and England is, it was a big deal yeah. to a lot of other countries and maybe in some respects it's, it still is now. So it's, you, you're sort of panning for gold, hoping to get the full element and the full picture of... Because uh, it's nice to know when, you know, how many players, how many caps players get. You know, because they deserve that recognition. Because actually, playing for playing for your the United Kingdom in a an Olympics Games tournament, I think is a real real something to behold. Actually, and uh, it's obviously because it was uh, fully amateur back then in the Olympics. You know, we had these. You know, Bill Slater who played for Brentford. He had a fantastic career with Wolverhampton Wanderers, and uh, you know, he was later given an Empire Medal for his his services to sports. You know, he, he played for the great British side uh, and I know he held that dearly. And uh, I'm pretty sure others that played right up until I think the last qualifier was uh, 72. I, th- I think it was uh, around 71, 72 for the Olympic Games. And that, from memory, one of the last great British games was, was actually played at Wembley. I mean, it must have been in front of one man and a dog, but they still got that, that privilege to play at Wembley. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, an honour. Whilst you've done all, all this research, you must have come up or come across some sort of little, let's say, little nuggets of gold, little stories that you think, really, did that happen? Anything like that? Well, it's just the amount of winning streak that this, you know, that uh, English football was so far ahead in the Edwardian era. They would be playing France and Denmark and Sweden and all the other places where they would organise tours and they'd be smashing teams. They'd be, you know, winning six, seven, eight. And you just notice as the years go on that the others are catching up. You know, Holland in the 50s was, it was an amateur affair. You know, even the full international side. Uh, so since the mid 60s, the Dutch team has caught up so much in terms of international football at all levels. But basically back then, they were, you know, they were little more than amateurs and nothing much to be concerned about. It's um, the the England amateur team does mirror the the empire. Right. Really. 
the further it went on, the less important it became, and then redundant effectively. Yeah. And the, you can you can level the same things as, as the Scottish amateur team and the Northern Irish and the Welsh one. But that you know, there's uh, there's there's cultural references that I find you know quite interesting mm. uh, uh, along the way actually. Yeah. So that the last game that you said was it a draw? It was a draw. I think it was a one-all draw. Yeah, it was played at Highfield Road uh, in commentary. I haven't got the program yet, but so I might, I might sort of uh, scour eBay uh, right. as the weeks and months. That's a terrible thing with lockdown. You know, you've uh, you get into these really bad habits of uh, getting into a, a rabbit warren of uh, program collection, and I seem to have grown my program <laughs> collection very substantially over the last six months. And yeah, I, yeah. I must have been, I didn't, uh, didn't have planned to uh, back in. Uh, the previous March, I must admit. Um, You're not and, alone. and actually, there's there's sources of information as well. Yeah. Because uh, you've you've shown that one of those uh, programs to me with a pink cover. I know full well it's Dulwich Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. It was playing. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's a great thing about, you know, if you're a, if you're a program collector and you specialize in semi-professional or amateur, you know full well at Dulwich, they, they used to just produce a four-page or, if you're lucky, an eight-page program purely in pink. Looks fantastic, yeah. you know. Bit boring if it's the same design year on year, which it was. But for certain for certain games, it actually, it's, yeah. it's great. And they, and and the information in that is uh, sometimes that can be just gold dust, and you can't get it anywhere else. And that's primary source information. That's actually coming from the club that's issued it, or it'll be from the FA that's given it to to the club to to publish. And that's a uh, that's another reason why I have to keep up my program collection for old programs because i know full well that the information is in there and i won't be able to get it anywhere else you know i could spend many fruitless trips to the library or going uh, onto a website researching but i know probably that the actual information that i need is going to be in that program Uh, and then from a local from a club level you know brentford programs from the from the 1920s go from two to three hundred pounds some of them so that's not in my league uh so maybe when i can retire one day maybe i'll uh Maybe I'll cash my chips in on certain other parts of my collection, but that's that's the that's the state of the uh, the, the program game as well. Right. And I think that that's another that's another facet to it for me. It's just fascinating to see all these to see all these programs. You know, Great Britain international size. You know, very very rare. You know, and you you'll see it once in a blue moon. And let's face it, when is the the, the Great Britain side going to play again? Probably yeah. probably only until we next get the Olympic Games. And I'm afraid, Russell, we're both not going to see that. No, I think, sadly, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, well, going from one one paper publication to another, um, you mentioned about writing a book. Do you think that will, will happen? How long down the line is that? Oh, that's a good question. I can't say how long it will be before it's in print, but actually I'm heartened by these print-on-demand services where you can just design your own book, stick it up there uh, on the internet and then people can just pay for it and download it. So I think, right. you know, I think I'll do that. I mean, I, I really would love to get the book out. Like I say, it's finite. So it's not like Brentford where I've got this project where I've got a thousand footballers that, that grows ever increasing in numbers as the seasons go on that you have to find out and find out more information about them. This project is finite, so I can just try and concentrate on that. And there'll be some fascinating tales that will, will come out of that. There'll be there'll be lords and dukes and sirs and and also from all sorts from the from the early 
uh, sort of period. But the goal scoring um, records were absolutely fantastic as well. You know, we talk about the uh, the Messis and the Maradonas and the Ronaldos and the, how many goals they've scored in football. Um, and you look at the amateur game, it wasn't unusual for, for some teams to have strikers to have about score 50 or 60 in a season because wow. they played so much football as well. And that's the... Uh, that's the other thing as well. There was, you know, amateur footballers played a hell of a lot of football. And I know professional footballers complain probably quite rightly, actually, due to the intensity about the amount of games that they play in a season. But especially towards the end of a campaign, the amateur teams will be playing three of two, three times minimum uh, a week because there'd be so many different competitions. And then if you're a good footballer, you get called into the county side. And if you're even better than the county, you get called up for the for the international team. So there's no rest at all. No rest. No. Well, well, thank you very much for, for enlightening us a little bit there about the England amateur team and, and just amateur football in general going back through the years. The website is englandamateurs.com. Um, I mean, uh, any social media channels that you'd want to put out there? Not at the moment, but I will set something up. I mean, you know, uh, englandstats.com, you know, for the full international site, the Twitter feed, the website is fantastic. And what I'd love to do is replicate what, what he's done there it's absolutely superb but there will be some digital offerings uh later and i'm committed to this year to putting out uh, a complete list of uh matches and players with individual pages uh which will actually help me in my research because when relatives type in, in in google their grandfathers or even their great great grandfather's name there'll be there'll be something there then they may be able to help in the research and hopefully i can help them by being proud of you know, their their father, their grandfather or their great grandfather because they play for the England England international team, which is no no mean feat. Absolutely. Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Russell. Thank you to Mark there for his time. Very enjoyable and informative, I'm sure you'll agree. You can take a look at englandsamateurs.com and find out a little more for yourself. Now you can find the show on all the usual social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search Three Lines Podcast. And it is also available on all the usual podcast platforms, including iTunes. So if you happen to be there, a review always goes down well. As I said at the top of the episode, I'll be back very soon with another episode looking back on an important part of England's past. That's coming next when we talk Sir Walter Winterbottom. So please, stay subscribed. You won't miss it. So until then, please look after yourself, follow the rules, stay safe. Cheers. Cheers.